Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I played Max Fisher in the Max Fisher Players adaptation of Rushmore, written, directed, and adapted by Max Fisher. Wow, now that's a meta, (laughs) mind-bending reference right there. So this season of Awesome Movie Year is all about the films of 1999, and we are here at Jason's pick, which he's just referenced. What is your pick, Jason? My pick is Rushmore, and I think, like I said, Josh, I'm just going to tap out and admit, no matter what the year is, if a Wes Anderson movie is out that year, I'll probably pick it as my pick. We know you hate Wes Anderson. I love him. Yeah, we both come together on Noah Baumbach. So how does that work? I Yeah, I don't know. Um, we previously did talk about Wes Anderson's first film, Bottle Rocket, not as your pick, but as our first feature episode when we did our season on 1996. And uh, I really dislike that movie. This one, not as much. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. That that's uh, That's an improvement. I think if we were advertising Rushmore, we could say Josh Bell, as your quote would be, I really dislike Bottle Rocket, this one not as much. So. <laughs> yeah, that would really be a good selling point. I think that would work out really well. well I mean, film. he needs it. He doesn't have like a following or anything. No, like that, not so. at all. Although at the time that this movie was made, I mean, as we talked about in our Bottle Rocket episode, that movie was not a hit, despite, you know, getting that support from, was it uh, James L. Brooks? And right. um, he was kind of a festival darling Wes Anderson with his short film and got this chance to make this big, um, not big, but uh, bigger feature debut that didn't really do very well. And so he wasn't like Wes Anderson yet at this point. This was just, he's a small filmmaker and here's his next film on a slightly larger scale. Yeah, but he had already been making fans. Obviously, like you don't get Bill Murray if you're not, you know, kind of don't have some type of reputation. Um, and, you know, Uh, But this is where he really becomes Wes Anderson. Yes, it is. And not only in terms of success, but also in terms of his style. Yeah. You can watch Bottle Rocket and there's not as not really all that much in that movie that's recognizably sort of Wes Anderson-y other than the presence of the Wilsons. And I think the soundtrack and the way he uses music, but that that, there's a little more of a a wildness to that one compared to the methodical nature of what we see going forward from it. Yeah, and that really starts a lot of that here. Uh, this movie was a success, not a massive one, but, you know, for this kind of smallish independent film, um, it grossed $19.1 million worldwide on its budget of uh, 9 to $10 million. Not, a, not an exact estimate there, but still, I mean, you know, that's like twice its budget that it yeah, made. That's it could pretty have, good. It could have been $9,371,456, or it could have been $9,800,880.51. Thank you for making up those numbers, Jason. <laughs> that's both between 9 and $10 Yes, million. it is. Good, good work on the math there, which we're not usually all that good at. Here. Well, Josh. I'm not the only one who can solve equations, much like Max Fisher in his head at the beginning. Yeah, of this in his dreams. He can't actually solve equations, though. Only imagine that he can. Um, and this was a very well-regarded film. It won two awards uh, at the Independent Spirit Awards for Best Director for Wes Anderson and Best Supporting Actor for Bill Murray, who was also nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. It premiered at the uh, Toronto Film Festival in 1998 and was released in a very limited capacity in December 1998 in order to be eligible for awards. So obviously a movie that the studio thought would be a good candidate for awards and was to some degree, and then was released in wide release later in 1999. Has he won anything yet, an Oscar? Maybe for Grand Budapest writing or anything? I don't know. I think he's been nominated for Grand Budapest. I'm not sure, but he definitely has not won a Best Director Oscar. No, I know that. And uh, I mean, but or a best picture or anything, but honestly, like he probably shouldn't because this is like so far outside of like what the Oscars would go for. Like who, who wants to win that award? If this is what you're making, he hasn't won, but he's been nominated for Royal Tenenbaum, uh, fantastic. Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest hotel and Isle of dogs for, for, for various, either a screenplay director or animated feature, obviously. Wow. Okay. What was the director one? Uh, Grand Budapest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like you're right that he doesn't necessarily make like Oscar-y kinds of movies, but obviously those voters like him if they've nominated him that many times. So it's possible he'll get to one particular 
uh, subject or whatever that will just work and get him. Yeah, there. it's kind of like Spike Lee to me, right? Because he's taking these big swings now, and Wes Anderson's in his own world, like doing his own Wes Anderson thing. And like Spike Lee should have won an Oscar of some type for Do the Right Thing, and then they're like. 30 years later, here's a writing award for a black Klansman, which like, I'm not negating the, I, what I'm saying is they seem to be a little looser on like the screenplay awards than like, we'll give you this, but don't expect a director award or right. something. Right. Like or who that. knows how long, I mean, how long did it take Martin Scorsese to win best director for the departed, which yeah. I mean, people love and is great, but is certainly not his best work necessarily. Right. Or at least uh, there were other movies up to that standard. Right. Before, right. And- but I think the thing with Wes Anderson Unlike Martin Scorsese or Spike Lee, who are very diverse in their approaches, Wes Anderson does the Wes Anderson thing all the time. And and as his career goes on, he only gets more honed in on that Wes Anderson thing. Yeah. Seems. So Taika Waititi, you should find a different style. <laughs> well, he ha- I mean, could you imagine Wes Anderson directing a Marvel superhero I would, movie? I would love that. I would yeah, love I don't that. think it's going to happen. But this movie, again, well-regarded, got a lot of positive reviews from critics. Roger Ebert said, the movie turns into a strategic duel between Max, uh, Max Fisher played by Jason Schwartzman, and Bloom, Bill Murray's character. And that could be funny, except that it gets a little mean when Max spills the beans to Bloom's wife and feels too contrived. When plotting replaces stage setting and character development, the air goes out of the movie. Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson are good offbeat filmmakers. They fill the corners of their story with nice touches, like the details of Max's wildly overambitious stage production of Serpico. But their film seems torn between conflicting possibilities. It's structured like a comedy, but there are undertones of darker themes, and I almost wish they'd allowed the plot to lead them into those shadows. The Max Fisher they give us is going to grow up into Benjamin Braddock, but there is an unrealized Max who would have become Charles Foster Kane. And Benjamin Braddock, the character Dustin Hoffman plays in The Graduate, and that is a movie that was heavily referenced here um, as an influence. And, and, and I think you can see that. I mean, if nothing else, in the way that Jason Schwartzman looks as uh, Max Fisher seems to resemble Benjamin Braddock. He's younger, of course. Max is a 15-year-old high school student versus Benjamin Braddock, the college graduate. I mean, you know, there's also that comparison of Bloom, you know, because he sinks into the pool and everything like Braddock does. And like Braddock sees his hopelessness out of, you know, I finished college and Bloom's like, I'm middle-aged and hopeless now, right? So yeah, the 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 graduate, which uh, clearly we need to watch again and reassess because uh, I we both liked it but didn't love it. I think, right? Yeah, so, I, I was pretty positive on it. I think when we did our episode, I, I was like, it's good, but I, and I didn't like it as much as I saw it when the first time. But yeah, we mentioned it here and uh, clearly here, and then also in Fight Club, two very similar films. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, I I can see the influence. Mm-hmm. I, I think when we talked about it in Fight Club, I didn't really quite see the parallels there but here i can definitely see it. i think it's that hopelessness and where that'll lead you but also like i want to disagree with ebert here on this whole idea of like oh well um it was too comedic and it should have been darker type thing like this is like wes anderson is so blunt and unforgiving with like he doesn't really care like you know if the, the characters are likable or what might happen to him, right? That's how it feels anyway. I don't think it needed to be darker than this. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird to me too. And again, I don't really like this movie that much, but the idea that not only does Ebert here reference it as a comedy, but it's been on lists of like the greatest comedies and it was, you know, named the best comedy of the year by some organizations. And like, to me, this movie is not funny at all, but not in a sense of like, it fails to be funny, but it didn't seem to me like it was trying to be funny. And maybe that's just, I'm not on Wes Anderson's wavelength as we've established, but I don't find anything about this movie, movie humorous. I do. But again, I think it's like, and I don't want to go so far as like towards the Tim and Eric anti-comedy comedy. Right. But like, I, that's what I mean. I think like there's no delineation for him of like, well, this is just how it's written and it is funny, but it's funny because we're playing it 
so seriously. Right. And maybe that's what it is. It's this kind of deadpan sense that to, to me, I mean, even though I, I really enjoy a lot of deadpan, dry humor, but that to me just never works from Wes Anderson. Okay. I'm going to bring up a moment in this movie that I thought was so hilarious and uh, maybe wasn't as deadpan-y as when Herman Bloom goes to uh, Miss is Olivia Williams. What's her name? Yeah, uh, Miss Cross, the yeah. teacher that, that both Max and Herman are in love with. And he goes to deliver a message to her from Max. And they have a little conversation. And the conversation ends and she turns back to her class and he sprints away. And I'm wondering, like, you know, we've never seen him really move fast. Why is he running so fast in the opposite direction? And it's it's almost a non sequitur to me. But like, I laughed a lot at that moment. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he's an awkward guy. You know, he may be middle aged and rich, but he's clearly just as insecure and awkward as 15 year old Max is. And so that's maybe his kind of response to oh, I just talked to a pretty woman. And, and I'm now, excited about you. Right. And now I, I can't handle it and I have to run away. Um, so Janet Maslin in the New York Times was uh, more effusive than Ebert was. She said, while the film embroils Max and the mogul, that's Bloom, in pursuit of the same beautiful teacher played by Olivia Williams, it's a particular treat for its skewed, hilarious memories of a cutthroat boyhood. Bespectacled Max who's as much of a sight gag for the wide-angle lens as he is a flesh-and-blood character, starts off on top of the Rushmore world and experiences a wonderfully welcome comeuppance. He's meant to be mellowing along the way, but Rushmore wouldn't dare turn sentimental about that. As directed by Mr. Anderson and written by him with Owen Wilson, his partner on Bottle Rocket, which Rushmore far surpasses, it's too smart to be maudlin. And I mean, I think that's true in the sense that this isn't a sentimental film. And not that I want it to be sentimental, but one of the things about Anderson that's a common criticism and that I feel is that his films are such these like clockwork constructions that they never feel like they have genuine emotion or human beings in them. Did you feel that in this one? Not to necessarily to the degree of some of his later films. But a bit. I never felt emotionally invested in any of these characters or what might happen to them. I definitely feel like the moments were earned and the ending like gets me. And it's a classic Wes Anderson ending with it's like, you know, one shot uh, where you're seeing, you know, the character, pretty much all the characters in this one in a carefully constructed shot. And you have, you know, the faces behind there singing, you know, ooh la la. And I, I mean, it just feels like that's the forerunner to what we see in the future. But I felt like everything was earned. And I don't agree with like all the moments or behaviors of the character, even from a motivational standpoint, for instance, like after um, Herman and Miss Cross break up and then Max like climbs to her window faking the injury. I feel like that was where it got like, all right, this is too far down the down the unbelievability path for me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know about like unbelievability or just the fact that I mean, and I guess maybe this is part of the point. But Max is terrible. Yeah, He's a horrible person. He, he is. And I knew you were going to say that. And that's why I'm shocked that you kind of like this movie, because I could see you just getting in there and just hating this guy and making the movie not not enjoyable at all for you. I mean, I wouldn't say that I kind of liked it. I'm just saying that I didn't dislike it as much as Bottle Rocket, <laughs> which I really, really dislike. I found this more tolerable, you know. But yeah, I think that's part of the issue is that Max is really unpleasant. And then even though a lot of these reviews point out the idea that like, well, we're not, you know, he's not being presented as likable or whatever. I feel like this movie has such a whimsical tone that it's not that he's supposed to be likable, but you're supposed to be amused by him and his antics and or, you know, and, and kind of, if not on his side, at least understanding of him or whatever. And I just found him, he's terrible and he remains terrible. He's not better by the end. I think he gets better by the end. For sure. He gets better. He's more open to being honest with who he is. He treats people better. He, uh, you know, realizes that certain people who care for him, he could actually care for back, you know, uh, he's way better as a character by the end. And I think part of that is that he's 15, right? So part of the reason he sucks is because everyone kind of sucks when they're 15, right? Right. You know? And he does have this like ultra youthful confidence about him at the beginning. And he's in his own bubble that gets burst and it has to take him all the way down for him to be built back up. Like I said, I think it's earned in this one. Yeah. I mean, sure. By the end, if we want to talk about the ending, like he's willing to admit that he's from this working class background and his dad's a barber and not a neurosurgeon. And he 
sort of grudgingly is willing to date this girl who he's treated horribly and yet still wants to sure, date him, who, sure. who is his age rather than an adult. But again, we say that now as adults, but like, dude, you know how many girls treated me horribly that I wanted to date back in the day or now? <laughs> I mean, but that doesn't make it like it's still a story and we still have to sort of care. And again, I think the movie presenting that as if Max is sort of like matured or gone onto a better path by the end. I just didn't buy it. I, where it gets me, Josh is it's this story of someone like figuring themselves out. And I, as much as I agree with you that he is horrible and like, but like, I do like the whimsy and like the ambition of him and that whole idea of figuring himself out and being kind of like unable to figure out how love works, like is, is still relatable. And, um, you know, the soundtrack just takes it to the next level for me. Yeah. We talked about the soundtrack element in bottle rocket and it just doesn't it, here too. It doesn't work for It's like, you're wrong. The, man. The, the song, it's not that the songs are bad. It's just this relentless series of needle drops that stand in for anything emotionally engaging no. and don't really fit. No, to me. wrong. They heighten the emotional engagement. Dave want to chime in? Well, I lean more towards Jason on this one, but at the same time, I do think that some of the things that people don't like about Wes Anderson are really amped up in this. And I, I think that those needle drops are a part of that. I, I could see how it would be off-putting for some people. It just, it's not that it's off-putting. I just feel like it's ineffective and it's, it's just relentless too. But for a more positive take, Lisa, Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly loved this movie. She said, Anderson, who wrote Rushmore with Owen Wilson, as he did his previous oddball gem, 1996's Bottle Rocket, is blessed with a vivid sense of humor and an artistic integrity unlike those of any other American filmmaker working today. Although there's something essentially hilarious about self-serious blue-blazered Max, and for that matter, something unnervingly funny about Bloom's clinical unhappiness, the filmmaker treats eccentricity with the dignity such individualism deserves. No winking, no snickering, no egotistical elbow nudges to even like the boy. And I don't know if dignity is the right word for how the, the approach in this film, Jason. What word would you use? I don't know, but dignity just doesn't seem... I mean, I guess what she's saying is that it doesn't become crass. It's not some sort of lowbrow comedy. And that's true. And it doesn't become sentimental the other way. So like, right. I think like it plays it, uh, it plays it as it lays. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, it just plays it with this, this sort of dryness that gives you nothing. And you know? I, I mean, to me, it, it, that dryness is hilarious. Like, <laughs> again, another example where Bloom's on the phone and he's talking to Max and he walks by. The kid's playing basketball and he blocks that kid's shot. That's hilarious to me, Josh. Yeah. And there's no reason for that to be in the movie. Right. I mean, the reason is theoretically we're seeing, again, how Bloom is sort of immature and petty and, you know, hasn't grown up. You know, I mean, you could look at it that way. As someone who's picked up my child from camp and uh, blocked a different kid's <laughs> shot, it, I look at it more of like a teaching moment here, Okay. You got to get the ball back and you got to try again. And the kid who shot I blocked, you know what he did? He put his head down and Charlie Brown sad walked away. And guess what? I don't think he's got a future in basketball. I don't think this is a story that you should be telling people. <laughs> you should be ashamed of this. Why? I walked in and he shot and I you, blocked you, you made a You, 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 you uh, deliberately made a kid upset. And I didn't. Del I deliberately blocked his shot. The mm. intention was not to make him mm. upset. It was to realize there are obstacles mm. to overcome. That was not your intention. And then when he walked away, you I said, no. would be funny. I said, no, no. Come on, get the ball and try again. No, you know how much it was hate, funny. You know how much I hate children. And even I'm like, this was the wrong thing for you to do in this moment. <laughs> well, Josh, you're not going to get any better playing against people who are worse than you. Mm. So instead, you should play an adult who is like uh, much taller and bigger. And he had all day to play the other kids. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's move on from this. Okay. Um, I assume since you love this movie, did you see this when it first came out? Yeah, I saw it with a girl I was dating in college and we're not going to get into a Josh Bell type story here, but I remember we both really, really like loved it. And I was like, yeah, this could work out. And then it didn't work out. Uh, that was on me. That one's my fault guys. But, um, 
Yeah, I just I love I love this movie. I think it might have been like a, when it came out, like one of my favorite movies ever, like immediately, and to the point where I wouldn't watch it again because it was like a perfect memory. And Josh, I also remember another friend and I. We used to joke around about having the Rushmore test, where like you would take a date and see Rushmore, and then if your date didn't like it, that's not someone you should be dating. I guess we're not going to date then. Well, that's uh, the end of that 20-year pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also saw this in college, although not in the theater. And, you know, because my experience was I had seen Bottle Rocket on your recommendation. Yeah, I hold, I hold strong on that. I know that you do. But I had disliked that so much and had been, you know, recommended it because you were not the only one, certainly, who thought it was great. Uh, I think when Rushmore came out and people were talking about how great it was, I thought, I'm not going to like this. And I had a friend in college who just really loved it. And at one point, I don't know why exactly, but we're hanging out and it's like, let's watch Rushmore. And he had already seen it and wanted me to watch it. And so we watched it and uh, I wasn't crazy about it, but I didn't hate it. Did you punch him? No, I did not punch him. Right. It was, uh, you know, it was a perfectly pleasant time. Well, that's but, good. Um, yeah, I I don't remember having that that sort of strong reaction like with Bottle Rocket of why did you Jason what have you done why did you put me through this I, I, but I just kind of came away from it like eh, it wasn't for me to me you know when we talk about like like Clerks Swingers like those movies and those are like the movies that made me want to be a filmmaker if I was a few years younger uh, this would have been the movie that would have made me want to be a filmmaker and I'm sure that was the case for a lot of people who saw it clearly because so many people have been off this style <laughs> yes so Dave did you see this when it first came out I did I saw it in the theater with my parents did yeah, your parents mm, like it I, they loved it I All remember right. they were dying laughing I, I loved it immediately too and uh, I think it was the first movie we saw as a family in Las Vegas well, when we moved here seems so. weird there's uh, no nudity or yeah, anything it's not, not that bad on the scale of things they made me watch yeah that's not, what I don't inappropriate at all really yeah that's what doesn't make sense to me no not at all so uh any other background here you want to mention on this film jason i mean you know this the max fisher character is kind of an amalgamation of wes anderson and owen wilson and doesn't doesn't make me feel positive about them as people doesn't it isn't it awesome that Wes Anderson would try to make these like type of plays stage productions as a kid yeah yeah that's pretty cool. He did like a Star Wars play and uh, that that's fun. And he said at the time of that play, it's difficult to mount that, especially with the limitations of an elementary school production. <laughs> but I feel like that's the type of thing where like he's both experienced it and completely removed from it. And that's what you get from a Wes Anderson movie, you know? Yeah. Um, and they used uh, their old school there to, to fill in for Rushmore. So that's cool. Yeah, it is. The, the school that did they both go there? Or was that Wes Anderson went to? I think Owen. Wilson went there and he got kicked out of it. Okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So uh, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Rushmore. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1999, we're talking about Jason's pick, Rushmore. And as has been well established on this podcast, Jason loves Wes Anderson. I do. And I don't. I do love Wes Anderson, and like I said, this was one I hadn't rewatched as opposed to like Tenenbaums, which I rewatched a billion times. But yeah, no, I mean, this still holds up. I don't know. I haven't made a letterboxed list where you can follow me at Gopher Jason of the Wes Anderson movies in order, but since I'll rewatch all of them, I, I probably will get there. So would you put this at the top, you think? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think... First watch all the way through Tenenbaums was probably my favorite, but I do have to, and Moonrise Kingdom were the two that like just broke out for me. This was, but I actually liked this one less this time than when I first saw it. But I think part of, there's two reasons for that. One, it was just such like a, just like epiphany in my head. Like, whoa, this hits every level of style and music and this and that. And like, it did, it was hilarious to me. And uh, so, you know, you lose a little of that. And then two, um, I agree with you that Max Fisher is just incredibly unlikable and you lose a little there too. Yeah, I, I, that to me was the thing. And I don't remember what I thought specifically about that when I first saw it. And I haven't seen it since uh, that time in college in, in 99 or 2000 or whatever it was. Um, but that was what struck me this whole time is just just how awful Max is. It's weird that like 
did you find when you were researching the criticisms of this film? Like no one seemed to be like, Hey, that Max, he really sucks. They were like, yeah, that Max, he's ambitious, huh? Well, no, I think, I think it's uh, actually, that was kind of what I thought that like, Oh, nobody seemed to comment on that. But I think there were some comments and the idea that Max is unlikable, but the way he's presented is an entertaining, you know? Mm. And so I much like my brother, Max, (laughs) Oh, I'm sure he's going to (laughs) appreciate hearing that. Uh, So I think there was some of that, but it was rarely, if ever brought up as a, as a criticism, it was in a way a positive, like, Oh, it took this character that's kind of, you know, uh, unpleasant or would be unpleasant and presented him in a way that we find very entertaining. Yeah, you know, it's it's weird to me because it is entertaining, like that montage at the beginning that, of course, the studio wanted to cut because they were like, do we need this? We don't understand how to make movies awesome, where it's like showing him and, you know, with the Rushmore racers and the fencing team and all that cool, iconic stuff that we've seen in really a hundred commercials since then. Right. You know, um, and you're like, you kind of get into it right away with him. And um, but so on the one hand i do like him from that ambitious standpoint i like that he's got his own like kind of uh uh assistant dirk calloway slave perhaps <laughs> I, I with person this. he treats terribly he throughout does, the film he, he does you know so um i can't deny that right so that's what i mean like um but yeah like with that part where they say that um it gets mean like between him and bloom like that's probably some of my favorite stuff in the movie. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I found that really, because I feel like that sequence where, so he and Bloom have now fully established that they are both in love with Miss Cross, the teacher played by Olivia Williams. And so they're now having this war between them or something. And it's just, it's really nasty. The scene where Max gets arrested I was like, yeah, Max should be in jail. He should. And he went to jail. So what's for the like problem? a minute, you know, I mean, one of the things he does is he cuts Herman's brakes, which could theoretically have killed him. Yeah, I think you might have not done that. <laughs> the thing that didn't make sense to me in that sequence, Josh, was um, he tells Mrs. Bloom about the affair. But when we see the kid's birthday party, right, it looks like she's already uh having an affair of her own like she's feeding cake to another adult male while herman's off in the distance you know doing his own thing so it looks like she's already you know that marriage is already over to me well right and that may be true and i think that is deliberate because we because bloom i think is meant to be less unlikable than max and so the fact that he starts having this relationship with miss cross and unlike max he actually succeeds in in getting her um, but he's married. I think we need to see that his marriage is essentially over or is a sham or whatever, so that he is less unlikable as a guy. He's this rich dude having an affair, even though I feel like it doesn't entirely succeed at making that convincing. Well, this is what I mean. It's like one, if she's already having an affair, right. And we assume their marriage is over. Then when he tells her, that, hey, Herman's having an affair, you wouldn't think like, okay, well, I'm going to kick him out of the house. Now my marriage is over. If like, she's already acting the same way. Well, we don't know. I mean, we see that one brief glimpse of her maybe just flirting with that guy who knows what she's actually doing. And we're looking at it in a way from Herman's perspective. I do want to talk about this sequence because like where they're pranking each other and it keeps escalating. Uh, That song, A Quick One While He's Away by The Who, uh, you, You Are Forgiven. Dave, you want to sing a little? No, thank you. (laughs) Like that to me is one of like the most rapturous sequences in film that I've ever seen. I love that sequence. I love the way the song's used against it. It's not a well-known Who song. I think they had to like pick it out of like a performance from, you know, uh, one of the like rolling circus documentaries of the 70s or something. And like, I just love the usage of that. I love the shot selection, the slow motion, the way he does that is like, one of my favorite montage sequences ever in movies. Wow. See, and that just like barely registered to me as, as anything notable. Yeah, I could. And I, I think that's, you know, like you said, like you feel like nothing towards the soundtrack where I feel like it's all elevating the material. Right. And again, I want to say it's not that I don't think those songs are good. Um, and I definitely, after watching this movie, had that Faces song, which is a very well-known Ooh song. La la. Ooh la la you know, in my head and singing along with it. It's a great song. 
But at the same time, I can't conjure up that Who song that you're talking about. And I Not saw even it. when I sing it? No, and I saw this movie yesterday. <laughs> um, <laughs> forgiven, forgiven, you are forgiven. It doesn't help that you keep doing that. I get it's not making it any better. Well. So, I mean, that's we, we talked about this in the Bottle Rocket episode, is to me, those, the music doesn't, doesn't enhance any of what's going on screen. It's not, it's not this, this sort of yeah, synergy yeah. of, of what you would want for something like that. I, it just, heightens for me. Yeah. To me, it didn't, it didn't do anything. And it, it just felt like this relentless, you know, it reminded me of, of one of the criticisms of uh, Cruella recently, <laughs> where it's like, they just use these constant needle drops well, to kind of stand in for emotions. But see Cruella, which what? Why are we talking about this? Like that? I mean, because that was a criticism of that movie. I mean, that movie was all costume and all music. Like, uh, not to say that there weren't costumes and music in here, but I feel like this one had actual story elements to get you to the next the next level. Yeah, and I feel like there isn't much. And 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 Wes Anderson's movies in general, or a lot of them, are all costume and music and and set design and stuff. And I feel like this. Wes Anderson and Cruella are not that far off from each other. Mm, disagree. I mean, to me, I you're again, you're undervaluing the writing and the directing of his films and like the, you know, as any as in any good film, all the elements that you just mentioned should serve uh, the purpose of, you know, making maximizing the story, which I think it does. Right. No, you're right that that should do that. And I, I don't feel like it does. Josh, I have a here's something. You yes. Know, when talking about the characters, the, the quote that I picked out was from Jonathan Rosenbaum in the Chicago Reader. You ever read Chicago Reader? I mean, I've certainly read Jonathan Rosenbaum's work. Oh, look at this. He's guy. a very famous film critic. Oh, ooh la la to you. <laughs> uh, he said that the uh, film harbors a protective gallantry towards their characters, which at the same time is the film's greatest strength and weakness. I thought that was pretty insightful. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that the film is sort of like coddling Max and Bloom in disservice to Miss Cross, who is really sort of the victim of stalking and harassment in this film. Nah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we know where I, you fall on this. No, I mean, no, it's the, it's the old argument of like, and that's what I told you when like Max climbs into the window and he fakes blood and it's like, you know, he's trying to give her a kiss. It's like, dude, stop. Right. Yes. Well, but again, like this is all like, you know, this is 99, right? And so we go back to 89 and say anything and John Cusack's holding a boombox. I mean, at least in like, say anything, those They are, dated. Yeah, they <laughs> dated and they're the same age and they're appropriate Bloom, as love interests. Bloom, Bloom and Cross were totally appropriate as love interests, don't you think? Well, he is married as we've established. They're, they're dude, come on. Are they? Are they married? In <laughs> they England? are married. In fact, are, yes, but, they are. But that marriage is de facto over. Yeah, but to, to approach her, and she doesn't know the intricacies. All she knows is that this is this older, rich, married guy who's pursuing her. So she could have said, you're an older, rich, married guy, and I don't want to do that because you're married. But she, she could have, but there's a, there's a level of power imbalance. He's also one of the benefactors of the place where she works. That You really think that has to do with her his pursuit of her? That not, he's a benefactor at not, Rushmore Academy? Not, not, not consciously on his part, but in terms of his position, if, were this a real thing, that would certainly come into play. And honestly, one of the things that I found the least convincing about this movie is that she actually kind of goes along with him that, you know... Unlike Max, who she consistently rejects, rightly so, that she have, gives in to the advances of Herman and not, and not reluctantly, it she, seems. Right. Like. It's not reluctant at all. In fact, she is the aggressor at a point where he goes to her house to talk to her about really to talk to her about her, but then uses Max as an excuse. But she's the one who says like, oh, well, we could just go for a walk now. Like she's into it the whole time. And I think it builds to get there. Like you see him at the dinner. Uh, these are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? One of my favorite lines from the, the movie. most famous line, which is just a really yeah, he's just a dick, not funny. Right? Yeah, yeah. To whatever. a guy who's working in an emergency yes. room, right, yeah. or a operating room. No, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with you on that. I think like this is clearly a consensual. Well, I'm not saying it's non-consensual. I'm just saying that the dynamic is kind of icky. I I don't see it here. I mean, she's. She's an adult to make uh, who makes her own decisions. He's an adult, and they together have decided they want to start dating. Yeah, 
I mean, I guess the other thing about that is that I didn't buy that. Well, I didn't okay. buy that as that as her character that she would go I, along with I that. Think, and then I didn't like it. I didn't want that. Like I didn't feel good about that. I mean, like, that's, that's the, a happy that's, ending or whatever. Right, but that's the movie, right? It's the competition. But also, I'm going to disagree with you on like Bloom's advances on her because, like, you know, uh, when they are in the hospital visiting Doctor Guggenheim played by Brian Cox. Also a funny scene when he wakes up and is like, where are you on, Fisher? Right, you know? He says to Herman, like, you know, how's Miss Crossing? He goes, I don't know. Uh, we broke up like six weeks ago and I haven't spoken to her since. So he's not stalking or doing anything. He's, they had their romance and he gives it the space after they break up. Right, right. I mean, Max is the one who's really the stalker he and harasser. He yes. is. Yes. I agree. He's also 15. But again, I feel like that doesn't that it doesn't, doesn't excuse, excuse it that. doesn't excuse it. And but it, like, I'm saying, like, you could see at 15 not knowing, as opposed to if Herman did it, you'd be like, dude, you're an adult, you know this is improper behavior. Max, you're 15, you're caught up in love. We've seen this a thousand times on film before. I get it. I think at a certain point, Max, by the time he climbs in that window with the fake injury, he knows he knows what he's doing. And and furthermore, even if you want to excuse Max as being immature and not understanding how damaging his behavior is, the movie excuses him. The movie presents him maybe not as likable, but as whimsical and quirky. Okay, so that is a fair point. I think I think Max doesn't understand his behavior as he's doing it. But I agreed with you, like, as I said in the beginning, like where it loses me is when he climbs in the window there. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, and also like, there's no reason for Dirk Calloway to forgive him either. No, poor Dirk really <laughs> is so really mistreated. I mean, Max mistreats nearly everyone. Even his, his father played by Seymour Cassell, who is so kind and understanding. And, you know, he's just like embarrassed of the guy and lies to him because he doesn't want him to come to dinner. And, yeah. and, and really like he deserves better. That guy. I love Seymour Cassell in general. I think yeah. he's just a great actor and everything but uh you know dirk has that line where he spits on herman bloom's car and he goes with friends like you who needs friends and he should be saying that about max really. he should i mean and, and eventually he does get to the point where he is angry at max and and you know ends their friendship because max has only been his friend in order to get with his mom another inappropriate situation that we see briefly there well he has a type yeah clearly he does and connie nielsen who plays the mom and and olivia williams actually look very very they could play sisters but josh you're you're again negating the fact that like max doesn't apologize to dirk dirk comes to get the haircut gives him a gift and kind of sets up like oh you should go visit dr guggenheim you know knowing that Bloom will be there, right? So Dirk is the one who like sets all that emotion in there. Right. And and Max doesn't apologize to Dirk, and yet Dirk forgives him anyway. That's what I'm and, saying. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's it's it, but to me, that points to again the idea that Max is not any better by the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't like him anymore. I don't feel like he's matured anymore. Yeah, he did apologize eventually. To know? Dirk? Yeah. Yeah. I think when they were flying the kite or something like yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know. Does he explicitly apologize or maybe, yeah, in a sort of an oblique way, you may be right about yeah. that. But I don't remember. I don't know. By that point, I just am not, you know, and the way he treats Margaret Yang, the more age appropriate love interest yeah. for him. Sarah uh, Tanaka uh, is a good actress. She's always fun. I wish she was still acting. Yeah, yeah, she's good in that part. And M- Mason Gamble, who plays Dirk, is also uh, also good. The both of them didn't really do much after this yeah, as actors. And, and you know, here's an example of what I mean when I say Max doesn't understand like his own behavior. And you know, there's an arrogance and an ego, and just he's in his own world. Like when he goes and finally like. You know, Magnus is the one who tells Dirk that Max made up the rumor about getting a hand job from Dirk's mom, right? And then, like, he goes to confront him, and Magnus just punches him and, like, knocks him out. And then when Max wakes up, he sees Dirk and, like, Dirk's friends around, and he just goes, we got him, Dirk. And it's like, what? How did, you know? So. Right. He still thinks that he's the righteous one, that he's the one who's morally superior to, not that Angus or whatever this Magnus, the, Magnus sorry, yeah. the, the big Scottish guy is a good guy. I mean, he's clearly a bully. But, but again, up. like, okay, look, yeah, again, like without defending them, uh, like they're all mixed up high school kids, Josh. Yeah. Like right. you're, you're not, you, I would hope you're a better person now than you were in high school. Eh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to say that I was a good person at high school. No, that's great though. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, 
I mean, this is this is your pick. Is there anything else you love about this that you want to mention? Well, no, we talked about, you know, those Anderson elements of style, shot composition. I think this is where we really see where he's going with all of this, you know, and uh, there's a lot of memorable shots, whether it's that uh, sequence at the beginning we talked about, like showing all of Max's extracurriculars. The plays are great, you know, and, um, you know, kind of uh, stuff like that. And I love uh, Kumar, one of Kumar's. I mean, he's also in uh, Tenenbaums, but when they cut to him at the end, there's that awesome shot, which I which to me was I was surprised you didn't like it or maybe didn't even reference it because it reminded me of the shot in Weekend, that long tracking shot. And also like Altman, where like the sound is kind of overlaid on it and they, you know, telling what everyone thought of the play and so everyone's getting giving the reaction of the play and they get to kumar and you know andrew wilson says what did you think of the play mr little jeans he goes best play ever man that always made me laugh that didn't i like that really register with me so nothing registers with you no Josh. no apparently not so but did dave you're you're anything you like about this movie you're more of a fan than i am too yeah i mean i just I don't think it's as funny as a lot of Wes Anderson's other movies. And that's, that's where it kind of like loses me some. And there, there's certainly some laugh out loud moments. I mean, I really like Bill Murray's kids. They're awful. You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, some of the other things that Jason already mentioned. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally speaking though, I think you guys covered everything about this thing. I mean, the plays are fun to watch. Yeah. So should we rate this then? Sure. Out of, uh, out of five. <laughs> Rumors of a hand job. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was gonna say like Rushmore pins or something, That's but sure. Fine. Five extracurricular activities. Five extracurricular activities. That works. It gets four for me. And okay. what's interesting about that is like I said, when I saw it, it was like one of my, you know, pantheon of movies. And I remember when we did Bottle Rocket on here, I gave Bottle Rocket on this viewing a four and a half. So Bottle Rocket is now ranked wow, ahead of Rushmore. This. For me. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna give it a two and a half uh extracurricular activities like i said i don't hate it but it just doesn't do anything for me so dave i'm going with three. Oh, that's kind of low i think eh, i liked it though all right fair enough well we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of rushmore Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1999, we've been talking about Jason's pick, Rushmore. And I mean, legacy-wise, we, we, we mentioned this as sort of the beginning of the noted Wes Anderson style, far more than Bottle Rocket. You can see a lot of stylistic things here for him in the future. Right, and I think it keeps honing in or homing in. I never get that one right. And, you know, it just keeps building this style upon style and whether it's set or costume design or music, it all kind of works in this Wes Anderson world that doesn't exist outside of there in Taika Waititi. Yeah. I feel like that's true that his movies get more and more kind of insular and contained in these little like diorama, like structures that, you know, to me is like, going further and further in the opposite direction of what I might potentially like about his films, but clearly it's working for him. So, yeah, I mean, look, man, it's, um, it would be boring if every filmmaker did the same thing, Josh. Uh, but that is what he does just does the same thing. No, but if every filmmaker did, did the, the same, same thing, thing as each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he just does the same thing as himself. I think time. he, uh, does a very good job of, doing Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, he's the best at making Wes Anderson movies. <laughs> I, agree, I agree. I think there's enough of a variety within his work of film. I'm going to step up and defend him a little bit here. I mean, he's got his stop motion stuff. He's got stuff that's more character based, that's more ensemble based. And just, I think there's a good variety in his work. Well, Dave, and, and this is as a Wes Anderson fan, we're taking out Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox because those are amazing. Well, why would we take them no, out? I, I mean, they're, they're his films just as much as any of his other films. Okay, but I'm telling you, but like, would you say that someone's animated, hand-drawn film is the same as someone's live-action film? I mean, if it's from the same director, then why would you discount it? I mean, Tim Burton has made animated films, and those are clearly within sort of the continuum of his work. Or we talk about Brad Bird as another director who's made notable animated and live-action films. I mean, it's not common for directors to move between those two, but if it happens, like, I don't see why you have to discount it. Okay, we'll put him back in, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. 
But even if you want to put it back in, those are ensemble casts mm-hmm. and go heavily on set music cues and all the sure. stuff that uh, we've talked about. But I like all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, we haven't yet at this point seen his new film, The French Dispatch, which I think will be out by the time this comes out. Woohoo! As they say in Is France. That a, a French woohoo? <laughs> sure. Um, another thing, of course, that Wes Anderson does is work with a lot of the same actors. I love that. It's like his own company. And yeah, I, I generally enjoy that when directors do that. Uh, this movie was his first time working with both Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman, but uh, both of them worked with him again and again. Bill Murray has been in every Wes Anderson movie since this. And Jason Schwartzman, in most of them, he wasn't in uh, The Royal Tenenbaums or The Life Aquatic. He's also worked as a co-writer with Wes Anderson, I believe, Jason Schwartzman. So clearly they all work very, very well together. Yeah. What's a good story about this is, um, so, you know, like you said, they had a budget between nine and 10 million. I don't want to get into specifics. Yeah. Um, But they wanted to do a shot where like... um, I think Bloom and uh, Schwartzman were in like a helicopter, maybe scouting the where they built the aquarium or whatnot. And I'm guessing they would have had Max fly the helicopter, which would have been fun. But the studio was like, well, do you really need this? Like, it's an expensive shot and they wouldn't give him the money to do it. And Bill Murray just wrote him a blank check and was like, if you need the shot, just do what you need to make the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that Bill Murray, even though he hadn't worked with Wes Anderson before, they just were on the same wavelength and he trusted him you know, to, to make a movie that, that he would be proud of being a part of this. Like when you look at Bill Murray, this is the defining line to me of moving from the classic comedy, Bill Murray into this more indie uh, middle-aged Bill Murray. Right. This really did send his career in that whole other direction. Obviously he worked with Wes Anderson multiple times after that, but also his work with Sofia Coppola and with Jim Jarmusch, all of that, I think, came out of this movie. Not that he doesn't still do dumb comedies. I mean, his work as the voice of Garfield is still on the horizon after this. <laughs> but, um, you know, certainly you're right that that this is really a catalyst for his journey into that indie uh, film world. And I think we, you know, we got to give credit to Olivia Williams. We talked about her when we talked about The Sixth Sense. And I feel like she's someone who did not work with Wes Anderson again. Um, but in general, she's kind of an underrated actor and, and this Miss Cross part here is hard to pull off because she really is just sort of reactive in the battle between these two big personalities. And she makes that person feel she, real. She's very good and, uh, underrated in this country. She works constantly in Britain and I'm so glad that she does. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she, she works a lot. I just feel like she's not necessarily always given the, her due. I, I liked her a lot on Joss Whedon's dollhouse. Uh, and the movie The Ghost Rider, those are a couple of my favorites, but she's been in, in a lot of good stuff. And, and as we said, very good in The Sixth Sense, which was also from Yeah, she had year. said, so she was in The Postman, the Kevin Costner movie, right? Yeah. And like, you know, that was supposed to be a big deal. and turned Not out to, so much. Turned out yes. to be The Postman. Very, yeah. But she was like, I had all these scripts, everything I could have wanted at this point in time. And, you know, she was reading a bunch of stuff and uh, she got this script and she was like, it just felt so far and above better than all the other scripts. And we're talking about the flaws in the, and not, you know, it's not necessarily not a fully realized female. There's more layers to her than a lot of the other females we see around this time, but we, we would have liked a little more kind of, uh, I don't know, like pushback from her. Yeah. I mean, again, I just feel like she's an entirely reactive character. Yeah. Okay. A A little, yeah, that's fair. A little more assertion, I'd say. But this is, uh, you know, this is still one of the best scripts she said she got. She also got The Matrix and so she didn't understand it. So. Yeah, well, that's what we, we, we've, so. we've uh, referenced also. You know, we talked about Wild Wild West. Will Smith also not uh, getting The Matrix when he was offered the chance to be in it. So uh, a couple of things, Josh. 1800 teenagers audition for Max Fisher names bandied about included Macaulay Culkin, which I would have been all in for. That would have been interesting. That. Yeah. Uh, Noah Taylor. Who is that even? Uh, I think he's an Australian actor, yeah, maybe. But yeah. who is that? Even? I'm not sure, but I think he's still working as an adult. That name sounds familiar. Yeah, Elijah Wood, who's we love Elijah yeah, Wood. Yeah, he could have been good in that. Yeah, I think he could be good in anything. And uh, Darren Chris from Glee. Oh, from Glee, yeah. I yeah. didn't realize he was. I, I don't think he would have. I think he's too gleeful. Yeah, so I mean, and that's weird because Glee was like, God, what? 10 plus, you know, maybe not 10 years, but uh, many years still, later, and he, he was still playing a, a high schooler. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and then Bill Murray, there's a great quote from him about the motivation of the character. 
um, and who Herman Bloom was. And also, I think the movie, what the movie is, is he says it's the struggle to retain civility and kindness in the face of extraordinary pain. Okay. Whatever, Josh. Leave me alone. All right. Hey, Josh, one other fun thing about the legacy is we talked about the MTV Movie Awards and how big those were. Do you remember that uh, Max Fisher, they they did some plays for the MTV Movie Awards back then? I You know, I probably watched it because I definitely watched all that stuff at that time, but I don't recall it. The Max Fisher players put on Armageddon, The Truman Show, and Out of Sight. And they'd be fun to look up on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, that's an interesting combo of films for them to do. Josh, you just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. Just for, like our podcast. For me, it's awesome movie. Yeah, all right. Sorry, I stepped on your line there. That's okay, buddy. So that's Rushmore, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Yeah, why don't you check us out on social media? Go for Jason.com. Got expelled from the World Wide Web School of Good Websites. Uh, Jason Harris Comedy or J. Harris Comedy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. AwesomeMovieYear.com possibly has a Blair Witch the Musical. Who knows? If it doesn't, some of our other socials might have it. Awesome movie here on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome movie pod on Twitter. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com. Also on uh, sudden death probation, I think. <laughs> at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at signalbleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where if there hasn't been, I feel like we should do a ranking post of Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, but let's wait until after we all see the French Dispatch. Sounds good. Okay. What are we talking about in our next episode, Jason? Josh, another joyous film about film. Not that Rushmore was that. It was more about other things. But this is American movie, a documentary that to this day permeates the souls of filmmakers everywhere. And that is our Sundance Grand Jury Prize winner episode. So tune in next time for American Movie. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. What are we talking about in our next episode, Jason? I don't know, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh... <laughs> Oh, it's a it's American movie, isn't it? Uh, oh shit! I should have looked that so. up. Let me double check. <laughs> yeah. yeah.